So Katie and I are looking at a picture that was published by the Daily Bruin in May of last year. Can you describe to me what we're looking at, Katie? So there are four people in the picture. Uh, Three of them are women, and each of the women are holding signs. And what's on those signs? So the first one says, get your agenda out of my restroom. There are only two genders, and transgenderism is a mental disorder. Yeah, and they all look kind of dressed up, too. Yeah, it looks like they're going to some sort of professional event, not a street rally. And then standing in between them is one man that is not holding a sign. He's sort of standing in the back behind them, and he has his arms crossed and is looking pretty smug. This photo was taken at a UC Santa Barbara lecture called An Encroachment on Liberty, How the Left Exploits Transgender Laws. And three of the students, Julia Nista, Victoria Metzl, and Haley Nieves, are students at UCLA and members of Bruin Republicans. Haley is holding a sign that reads, Get your agenda out of my restroom. I don't think that hate speech exists. I think that it is an excuse that people use to get out of difficult conversations because if you attempt to objectively define hate speech, then it's very difficult to come to a conclusion. And very often hate speech, again, just becomes what someone disagrees with or finds to be disagreeable or inappropriate. That's Haley Nieves, the former outreach director and external vice president of Bruin Republicans at UCLA. If any positions or any areas of speech are prevented from being put forward on campus, then you're preventing students from being able to be exposed to new and challenging worldviews. I think that very often individuals uh, who come from like any political persuasion, but particularly on the left and in the center, uh, haven't been exposed to conservative ideas or uh, right of center ideas by individuals who actually hold them. I think it's it can be productive to like put forward like outrageous statements like that because it provokes a response. And if you're interested in garnering an audience, then sometimes that's necessary because it It begins, again, with this potentially absurd claim or this uh, outrageous claim that provokes an emotional response within someone or just like calls them to their attention. And then you actually get an audience to come out to our event. The incident certainly garnered an audience. It was widely covered by the local and national press, and the UCLA community responded with op-eds, protests, community gatherings, and, as Haley observes, contentious Facebook comment threads. But does that really constitute a dialogue? Aubrey Sassoon is a leader for Transgender UCLA Pride, or TransUp, and former undergraduate student representative on the Transgender Advocacy Task Force and the Committee on Diversity and Equal Opportunity for the University. She fully understands and supports students' right to free speech on campuses, but believes that these students also take on a responsibility to their community. I get incredibly frustrated with these groups, say conservative groups, uh, like the Bruner Republicans, who are very intent on just putting the speech out there. And like I was saying before, they seem to feel no real responsibility to talk about it, to break it down. Even the things that they individually say, uh, like with the signs, of course, it wasn't them representing the, the group. It was them as individuals. But even them as individuals, the kind of lack of responsibility that they see to the community, I find really disrespectful. Um, that if you're going to say something, you know, inflammatory and that you know it's inflammatory and or that you know that it's at least controversial, that you should be prepared to talk about it. And, you know, 
respond or, you know, elaborate or, you know, otherwise you're, there's no responsibility and there's no other, there's no like further connection with the community. You're just kind of staying in your bubble. And that's kind of sad. According to Aubrey and other leaders within the LGBTQ plus community on campus, Bruin Republicans was invited to participate in intergroup dialogues organized in response to the photo, but none of the students featured in the image attended. And we had a number of dialogues on free speech versus hate speech, on things specifically about the signs. We had a dialogue on trans identities and LGBT identities and like all this different stuff. And we invited them to a lot of them. And we just never heard any response. The administrators very much wanted to get them to talk about these things. And that we're trying to create some kind of setting that they, that they would feel safe in, ironically. But they just they wouldn't show up. So I just get very frustrated with that. They have no feeling of responsibility with their words and with their sense of community. I remember I was tabling on Bruin Walk several weeks afterwards and uh, an individual from the LGBTQ plus community came up to me on campus and said that they, they personally were very harmed and, and like emotionally damaged by the posters that we held up and the image that was then circulated. But they respected our right to free speech and our ability to express ourselves on campus, even though they disagreed with it. And we shook hands and looked at one another in the eye. And I thought that was something that was valuable. That conversation in particular didn't move beyond that into an exchange, but there were a lot of conversations that transpired online that I think did do that and that there were conversations that were being had. So uh, like within like that setting in particular, the individual like just wanted to introduce themselves to us and then go about their day. But I think if, like, if we're looking at just like comments threads on Facebook, for example, there were very productive discussions that were being had, in my opinion. Freedom of speech on college campuses is a hot-button issue. And based on these conversations, it would appear that both proponents of unrestricted freedom of speech and those most hurt by it want college campuses to be a place where constructive dialogue can happen and ideas can be challenged. But are there boundaries for limits on free speech? Can someone really just say anything they want, no matter how offensive or hurtful it is to others? What does it mean to actually have constructive dialogue? Do Facebook and news comment sections help advance our republic and support community building? We don't have all the answers to these questions, but we do know that our campus community can do better in responding to these issues as they arise. Disagreement is healthy. It allows us to think critically about difficult social issues and make choices about what we believe and how we behave. Choice allows us to express our freedoms positively and constructively if, and this is a big if, we can communicate in a way that is effective and respectful. And part of that means having an actual dialogue, a conversation where we are listening to each other as equals in thoughts and rights and actively working to understand one another and build a stronger community. As John Milton wrote in Areopagetica, his timeless defense of free speech, when complaints are freely heard, deeply considered, and speedily reformed, then is the utmost bound of civil liberty attained. I'm Sarah Wyman. This is Global Voices. And today, we explore those ideas further in the context of free speech on college campuses. So, in legal terms, what are the rights of clubs on campus who want to bring in speakers, and what restrictions can the UCLA administration place on them without making the school vulnerable to lawsuits? 
Let's start with the First Amendment, which grants all Americans, including, of course, students, extremely broad rights regarding free speech and freedom of the press. For our non-American friends, the Bill of Rights is another name for the first ten amendments, which were ratified at the same time as the Constitution. The First Amendment protects core American values, which include freedom of religion, freedom of speech into the press, freedom of assembly, and the freedom to petition the government. There are very few limits on freedom of speech, specifically because it is so clearly codified in the First Amendment. Some examples of restrictions on free speech are libel, copyright infringement, and child pornography. There are also some restrictions in regards to harassment of individuals. However, these laws differ from state to state and for the most part are very difficult to enforce due to these constitutional free speech protections and anonymity associated with speech in public spaces. The restriction that is the most relevant to the topic of this podcast involves harmful speech, or so-called fighting words. The notion of fighting words and the degree to which they can be used as a legally viable justification for limiting free speech hinges on two Supreme Court rulings, Chablinsky v. New Hampshire and Cohen v. California. In Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire, a Supreme Court case from 1942, the court ruled that very narrow limits on speech include, quote, the lewd and obscene, the profane, the libelous and the insulting, or fighting words, that those by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace, end quote. Even with this ruling, there remains a very high standard for prosecuting individuals for so-called fighting words. For instance, chanting, fuck America at a protest, though offensive, would not constitute fighting words. The Supreme Court reiterated their definition of fighting words almost three decades later in Cohen v. California, which ruled that, quote, personally abusive epithets, which, when addressed to the ordinary citizen, are as a matter of common knowledge, inherently likely to provoke violent reaction, are in fact illegal. In plain English, speech which targets individuals and intends to elicit a violent response is not protected by the First Amendment. If you're thinking that intent to elicit a violent response might be hard to prove in court, you're right. Between the vague definition of fighting words and U.S. courts' deference to protecting our constitutional rights, it is very difficult to make a legally sound argument for limiting freedom of speech on the grounds of fighting words in the United States. I will fight, both as just me as me and me as a teacher, for the right of all these folks to speak on campus, even, even if I find their speech to be distasteful. That's Keith Fink, a lecturer in the Communication Studies Department at UCLA and a staunch supporter of the First Amendment. Professor Fink is a practicing lawyer and teaches courses such as race, sex, and politics, free speech on campus. The fighting word doctrine does not apply to any of these invited speakers. Well, I think almost every expert will tell you the fighting word doctrine has been rendered a dead letter. The only application of the fighting word doctrine, even in the context of Chaplinsky, would be when you've got face-to-face interaction. So between individuals, the speech is directed towards the other individual, and it's likely to lead to violence. In a college and university setting, harassment, that which is prohibited, must include something beyond the mere expression of one's views, words, symbols, or thoughts that some person finds offensive. Additionally, the conduct at issue must be considered sufficiently serious to deny or limit a student's ability to participate in or benefit from the educational program. UCLA students are no strangers to this fact. 
If you've set foot on Broomwalk recently, you may have crossed paths with Christian extremists wielding science-bearing Bible verses and loudly berating passerby. And that's legal. They can come to campus and tell students they are going to hell for the clothes they wear or for their sexual orientation. Campus police appear quickly, but usually watch the events without interfering, waiting for signs of physical action or violence. So, back to the issue of speakers being invited to college campuses. Let's imagine Ann Coulter is invited to speak at UCLA by a conservative student group on campus. For those of you who missed the headlines last April, Coulter is a conservative political commentator whose speaking engagements at other campuses, most notably at UC Berkeley, have been extremely controversial. When Coulter was engaged to speak at UC Berkeley, many students, as well as others not affiliated with the university, protested her appearance, citing harm to students on campus. Other student groups, as well as political commentators without university connections, came to Coulter's defense, claiming that the cancellation of the event represented a direct attack on First Amendment rights by the University of California. Eventually, Coulter's event was canceled and subsequently rescheduled due to immediate security concerns regarding Coulter herself as well as students involved with the event. If a student group at UCLA invited Coulter or a speaker like her to campus, it would be almost impossible for any students or student group to legally stop her from speaking. The UCLA administration would become susceptible to lawsuits for restricting the speech rights of Coulter and the student group that invited her. In short, there would be no legal basis for denying Coulter a platform on campus as her speech, while controversial and potentially harmful to some, would not fall into the fighting words category or other legally narrow restrictions. Student groups' attempts to block these extremely controversial and potentially harmful speakers from attending events on campus are misguided. Administrators who cancel events citing security concerns without making an effort to reschedule and provide adequate security measures for these events are infringing upon students' right to free speech. The right to speak freely in a public forum must be upheld, even if it adversely impacts a community. And we'll explore these destructive effects later, but for now, it's important to understand that every individual's right to speech must be upheld, even if their views are abhorrent. It is in the best interest of all students, including ethnic, sexual, and non-binary minorities, to make sure that no speaker is prevented from airing their views. Ultimately, free speech is the cornerstone of our republic, and there are very valid reasons for the lack of restrictions on freedom of speech in the U.S. It allows Americans to air their grievances and express their opinions without fear of legal repercussions. The catch is, if an individual wants to be able to exercise their right to freedom of speech, they must respect the rights of others to do the same. In May of last year, Milo Yiannopoulos was invited to speak at an event entitled Feminism is Cancer, sponsored by the Bruin Republicans Club at UCLA. Protesters outside the venue succeeded in delaying the event for an hour, but Milo ultimately took the stage in UCLA's Broad Hall to, and I quote, provide a critique of third-wave feminism as it relates to topics including, but not limited to, free speech, the gender wage gap, rape culture, social justice, cultural authoritarianism, and the emerging phenomenon of safe space microaggression and trigger warning culture on college campuses. If this is the first you're hearing of Yiannopoulos, you've got some interesting Google searches ahead of you. 
before he was pressured to resign from Breitbart.com last February over comments which appeared to condone pedophilia, Yiannopoulos commanded a strong presence in ultra-conservative and alt-right corners of the internet, where he espoused anti-LGBTQ, anti-feminist, and Islamophobic ideology. His appearance at UCLA was part of the Dangerous Faggot Tour, a series of speaking engagements at universities in the United States and Great Britain carried out between late 2015 and early 2017. The tour was riddled with controversy, which, if we're being honest, was probably the point, and sparked much of the debate surrounding free speech issues on college campuses that's still being carried out today. We've established that, according to American law, silencing Yiannopoulos is neither practical nor productive. If he wants to speak at college campuses, he's allowed to do that. And he isn't just allowed to speak. He can rile up his audience, ostracize members of the campus community, and make people deeply uncomfortable through his speech if he so chooses. What we have yet to address is what occurs in the aftermath of such an event. Both the left and the right exercise free speech to voice opinions that their political adversaries might object to. But students like Aubrey, who we spoke with earlier, draw a line between speech that conflicts with their political views and rhetoric that actively harms their communities. I don't want to like dichotomize the different sides of it but one side is also very clearly very purposefully dehumanizing me my friends other people other communities and kind of invalidating our experiences as humans as trans people as lgbt people as you know whatever identities we hold and just kind of saying like you know no you're wrong for a more concrete example of the type of harm that may be inflicted by free speech, consider an incident that transpired at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee during one of Milo's speaking engagements. We're about to play a clip of Milo's speech, and fair warning, it's pretty hard to listen to. If you want to skip ahead about 30 seconds, now's the time. Out of respect for the student that Milo targets, we have edited her name out of the clip. God, man up's a big no-no for liberals are intent on eliminating masculinity from culture. Toxic masculinity and rape culture are some other idiotic things they like to say in their war against men. Well, I'll tell you one UW Milwaukee student that does not need to man up. And that is... Do you know about... Have any of you come into contact with this person? This quote-unquote non-binary trans... You're not laughing now, are you? We know him. Quote-unquote non-binary trans woman forced his way into the women's locker rooms this year. Who knows about this story? Any of you? I see you don't even read your own student media. He got into the women's room the way liberals always operate, using the government and the courts to weasel their way where they don't belong. I have known some passing trannies in my life. Trannies, you're not allowed to say that either. Um, I've known some passing trannies in my life, which is to say, which is to say um, transgender people who pass as, the, as the, um, the gender they would like to be considered. Well, no. Um, I'd, the way you know that he's, he's failing is I'd almost still bang him. Um, it's just, it's just a man in a dress, isn't it? The student Milo is talking about ultimately decided to leave the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee because she didn't feel like she could continue her studies there. The incident was humiliating, made her feel vulnerable, and, as I'm sure we can all imagine, caused a great deal of harm to her personally. Sure, this is one student at one university, an isolated incident, but the impact of the event reverberated across the trans community. 
Aubrey emphasized how this event destabilized trans communities on college campuses across the country where Yiannopoulos was scheduled to speak. When he projected a trans student's face onto the screen at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Yiannopoulos sent a powerful message to the rest of her community. You could be next. I was worried about that because I was writing all these op-eds and, you know, going on, you know, on the record and all these things. I was like, oh shit, like what if like he starts a slideshow and it's like me. There is nothing the law can do to protect students from being targeted in this way. And it isn't realistic to expect Milo Yiannopoulos to hold himself accountable for, let alone acknowledge, the repercussions of his speech. So whose responsibility is it to repair the damage? There are many people out there, like Keith Fink, who would argue that the repercussions of free speech aren't relevant. However painful these experiences may be, they are necessary because they're unavoidable in the real world. The university should not be a safe space. The real world is not a safe space. And in the real world, you have to deal with President Trump, you have to deal with decisions made by Congress uh, that you may not like, by the Supreme Court you may not like. So universities are doing a tremendous disservice to students when they coddle them, when they try to create safe spaces, shield them from effects of the real world. So I don't, I don't view this at all uh, uh, as the mission of a university. Professor Fink defends unrestricted free speech and controversial speakers because he believes that college students should be exposed to ideas that make them uncomfortable. If you can't take it, he says, that's on you. But for the people implicated by this kind of speech, many of whom feel as if their experiences are being invalidated and their identities called into question, it doesn't feel like a fair fight. It was all about this idea that, like, you know, students in their safe spaces and all these sorts of things and, you know, special snowflakes and that we experience discomfort as a way of producing growth in, you know, it's like character building. It's like this kind of old trope um, of like the, you know, dad taking you camping and it's miserable and, you know, it's like, you know, build character. And it's like, yes, uh, you know, negative experiences, uncomfortable experiences do in some way influence you know, somebody's character in the same way that any experience influences somebody's character. Somebody who only experiences privilege their entire life will not understand what it's like to be to be oppressed. Sure. There's all these different ways that that like, you know, it's like that's just true of any experience ever that it will affect someone's character and experiencing, you know, difficult things and not being, to use their word, coddled from those things is important. But I think that that's incredibly patronizing and dismissive of the experiences of the people, of the students who, you know, are there. And it's kind of just allowing violence to happen and saying it's good for us. And that's just like the most patronizing thing I can think of is, you know, there's so many more constructive ways to go about like learning about other, you know, experiences or things like that. And it's as if other groups don't ask for, you know, spaces where they can just have a reasonable expectation of safety. Aubrey also brings an important word into the discussion here. Violence. It is inevitably messy to try and find a direct link between speech and violence. At what point can we hold someone responsible for inciting violence through words? According to the law, the threat has to be very immediate and explicit. That being said, hostile words contribute to hostile environments. Take, for example, the uptick in hate crimes that coincided with the Brexit victory. According to BBC News, Hate crimes in the UK spiked immediately after the referendum passed, increasing by more than 50% compared to the previous three months. 
Similarly, the Southern Poverty Law Center reported a surge in hate crime in the U.S. after Trump won the presidential election. A high of 202 incidents took place on November 9th, and an additional 665 hate crimes were reported between November 9th and November 18th. No one could successfully argue that Trump or Nigel Farage should be charged for these crimes. However, the fact that violence towards the minority groups that Trump and Brexit proponents targeted in their rhetoric increased immediately after that rhetoric was legitimized by their victories is significant and cannot be shrugged off as merely coincidental. Perhaps we're getting too off topic now. Let's pull our focus back to college campuses and examine a specific incident of violence that unfolded at the University of Washington this past January. Milo Yiannopoulos, clearly a source of unending controversy, came to campus at the invitation of the UW College Republicans. As expected, the contentious event drew in massive crowds of both attendees and protesters. The initially peaceful demonstrations outside the venue took a turn for the worse when protesters began to throw bricks and paint. The scene became increasingly confrontational, culminating when an Antifa protester, Josh Dukes, was shot in the stomach by a Yiannopoulos supporter. Legally, Milo Yiannopoulos cannot be charged for the crime. However, it would be naive to assume that this violent incident had nothing to do with Yiannopoulos. He's a self-proclaimed provocateur. Every aspect of his events, beginning with their outrageous and offensive titles, is designed to further divide between his audience and the rest of the world. The wider that divide gets, the more impassioned people get, and the less willing and able they are to talk to each other about the issues that stand between them. And under those circumstances, violence is much easier and more satisfying answer than the prospect of a civil dialogue. Maybe safe spaces are necessary, not only because they protect targeted minority groups, but because we need places where people feel comfortable enough to talk openly and have constructive dialogues so that frustration and anger don't build up and manifest themselves in physical violence. After the shooting at UW, the victim, Josh Dukes, said in an interview with The Guardian, quote, Right now, we're continually escalating violence. Maybe if we can have a larger conversation, maybe we can turn this thing around. We have to start seeing each other as people, end quote. Josh Dukes is right. The importance of conversation cannot be overstated. Speech can lift communities up or tear them down, inspire positive action or incite violence. When we exercise our right to free speech, we must be cognizant of the fact that power and responsibility are inextricably linked. In a strictly legal sense, a speaker is not accountable for the repercussions of their words. However, as members of various communities, the UCLA community, the Los Angeles community, etc., we owe it to our peers to wield that power responsibly and use it as a tool to further build up those communities rather than tear them down. Taking it back to college campuses, conversation is critical because one-sided speech is at best useless and at worst extremely damaging to the campus climate. Take, for example, the anti-transgender sign controversy that we introduced at the very beginning of the podcast. Regardless of how their action was received, the three women in the picture intended to start a conversation. What we were interested in was like discussing those issues. And when you're, you're holding up signs, you can't like write down a detailed argument like that on white poster board with black marker that someone is going to immediately like read and identify. So you begin with claims. Haley considered her effort to be successful and productive because it sparked a, quote, national debate. However, as you may remember, 
Aubrey recounts the aftermath of the event very differently. According to her, when the trans community at UCLA tried to engage Haley and her peers in a dialogue, they couldn't get a response. Raja Batar, the director of the LGBTQ Resource Center at UCLA, recounted a similar experience. It was not a discussion. It was simply, well, I can say whatever I want. I'm like, yes, under free speech you do. And at the same time, we do have also a responsibility for the consequence of what we say. You know, and the intention might have been, I want to express my free speech. Okay, so then what does it mean then for you to then also take responsibility for the impact of your free speech? And that's the, the other piece of, that's also part of what comes with having free speech. Despite the fact that Haley had the intention of starting a discussion, the conversation on campus that followed the incident was lacking in inclusivity and constructiveness. To be clear, the type of conversation we are talking about is very specific. It's more than just an individual or a group of individuals airing their shared views. In order to be constructive, a conversation needs to be an exchange of ideas between individuals or groups of people that aren't on the same page. And that discussion needs to take place in an environment where everyone feels like they are being heard and respected, where everyone is seen as an equal. Furthermore, all participants must enter the conversation with the express desire to learn from one another and recognize that they could be wrong. A conversation cannot occur if you are so sure that you are right that you cannot hear what the other side is saying. In this way, a true conversation is almost the opposite of a good debate. When two people enter a debate, their goal is to win. They twist facts and dodge questions to formulate the strongest argument possible. Regardless of who wins, both parties often leave the debate even more entrenched in their own opinions than they were when they entered. This setting is completely antithetical to the aims of constructive dialogue, and it is noteworthy that Haley used the word debate when she described the outcome of the sign incident. The most obvious requirement of a dialogue is that everyone must be in the same room. After the bathroom sign incident, an inclusive conversation couldn't take place because the Bruin Republicans and the trans community at UCLA had two separate discussions. They were never in the same room at the same time. However, even if we get everyone into the same room, it's unrealistic to expect a respectful and productive discussion to flow naturally. In order for everyone to feel comfortable and talk openly, they must enter the discussion on an equal playing field. And this is inherently challenging when the issue at hand is closely intertwined with identity. I feel like even in that space they're being devalued and dismissed, I think is what really hurts. And it really comes from a space of, you know, what does it mean when I can't be myself in a place that I'm supposed to learn and grow, and yet I'm expected to contribute to the campus when I'm, I'm not feeling safe? What does it then mean when someone says that you cannot, you should not exist? It just, it, it harms them and to the point where it does, it, you know, I have transfers where like, I can't get out of bed every day because I'm not sure who's gonna harass me when I go to the bathroom. I'm not sure who's gonna tell me that I should not exist on the bus. I'm not sure who's gonna hit me when I'm just, you know, walking home from school. The nature of this discussion almost inevitably forces transgender students to be on the defensive, which is definitely not conducive to an honest and constructive dialogue. Mutual respect is necessary to create an atmosphere in which students are able to let their guards down and share their opinions and experiences openly. A productive dialogue assumes cooperation between many moving parts, and in order for one to take place on campus, every member of our community would need to recognize their role and responsibility in that process. 
That's not going to happen overnight. But it's worth thinking about how we can all contribute to an environment in which constructive conversation can flourish in our capacities as students, administrators, and community leaders. As far as the university goes, campus administrators must continue to ensure that First Amendment rights are upheld for all speakers, regardless of their ideology. This includes making sure that spaces where they're invited to speak are safe and civil by encouraging students to engage with new perspectives respectfully and open-mindedly. It isn't just their moral responsibility to make sure these spaces are made available. It's their legal duty. Insofar as invited speakers have the capacity to inflict harm, be it emotional or physical, upon students and campus communities, administrators also have a moral responsibility to promote a positive learning environment where dialogue can occur. How the aftermath of controversial events is handled is just as important as how universities deal with the events themselves. Perhaps more so if the ultimate goal is a constructive conversation that builds a more inclusive and productive society. It's important for us as advocates and and administrative folks to help students understand what free speech is and what is covered and what is not covered, but also how to then be responsible and take action to deal with the consequences of what free speech means, right? Yes, you can bring Milo. And at the same time, you have to then, then be ready for the purchase that are going to happen, right? And to also be willing to adjust, justify why you, why you think you, Milo provides a voice that isn't heard on campus. And I don't know if I heard much of that happening. It was, I think it was more of a uh, scare tactic and maybe even just a, uh, almost like a wild factor of bringing some of these folks. So to Raja's point, the administration must support students' free speech and help them understand the power and consequences attached to that right. But at the end of the day, there is a limit to what the administration can feasibly do. Ultimately, it's up to the students to invite speakers that will actually facilitate a constructive conversation. My own views tend to be uh, of a conservative bent. If it was my choice, if I was the head of the Republican club, I would not choose Miley Yiannopoulos. He's simply a provocateur. If we wanted to have somebody on our campus or any campus come to speak, we can find a real expert. If the Bruin Republicans are truly interested in starting a conversation, and not just a shouting match, they need to reevaluate their criteria for selecting speakers. Relying on sensational event titles and provocative figures may get people to the venue, but does that matter if they never make it inside? Protesters blocking the entrance to an event are not engaging in a dialogue. Right-wing political commentators who decry thin-skinned liberal snowflakes are not promoting dialogue. And contentious Facebook comment threads almost never yield constructive suggestions for social progress. By prioritizing the quantity of their audience over its quality, Bruin Republicans attract a group of people who are eager and equipped to use their own voices, but totally unprepared to participate in a real dialogue. If they abandoned their inflammatory rhetoric and invited speakers with less abrasive speech tactics, Bruin Republicans' events might see a drop in their attendance. But the people that did show up would be more predisposed to listen, converse, and then bring that conversation out of the auditorium and to the larger campus community. But if they can't do that, if inviting speakers that push the limits of free speech to their extremes is too important a part of students' political and personal ideologies to abandon, they must at least be prepared to engage with students who are offended by that speech. They have a responsibility to come to the table and engage those students after the event is over. And Facebook comment threads don't count. <laughs>
If you want to have an, a space to have your voice heard, then you also have to then be willing to justify and advocate and engage in it so that other people then can learn from that. If any of the college Republicans are listening, I invite them to be able to engage us in a discussion. So I think it's an important space. Or other conservative folks, right? Or other folks that may not understand what LGBT identity is or what it looks like to say, come engage and learn and think about coming to an ally training or just even to say, I want to learn more about what the community is. And I'm more than happy to engage in that conversation because I think it is that's where it starts. The reality is, though, that even if the Bruin Republicans do not honor their responsibility to the UCLA community, protesters are still not justified in silencing them. Shutting down their events is not only an infringement on their rights, it's also completely unproductive. Instead, students should focus on creating a counter-narrative that seeks to drown out negative or harmful speech through community-building events. Go to something else. Let's bring another cool speaker. Let's actually go, like, let's actually der- derail the energy from just protesting what you don't want to hear to actually having voices that you want to hear. When Milo was supposed to come to the second time, we actually were planning a counter event in another part of campus. So we had a spoken word event. We had people sharing voices, uh, singing. We had people doing performative art. We had uh, we had a whole range of different activities. So it was like a whole other event that was planned in kind of at the, at the opposite end of campus just to be able to provide something that was affirmative and community building. Recent clashes over free speech rights on college campuses make it feel like universities and their communities are being cleaved in two by partisan politics. But you only have to dig a little bit deeper to discover individuals and organizations dedicated to combating these divides. After three UCLA students were photographed holding transphobic signs last year, other students responded with their own pictures and their own signs, spreading messages of love, acceptance, and hope. The overall campus climate is determined by the actions of the entire student body, not just the loudest voices. And each individual has the power to contribute to that dialogue, even if they're not personally involved in the issue. As students at UCLA, we must be willing to respect the rights of others to voice their opinions. We must be willing to engage our peers in difficult conversations. And when we see that members of our community are being targeted in a way that is unproductive, we must be willing to raise our voices and change the narrative. If you don't like what you're hearing, you fight free speech with more free speech. Because that's how we actually get a dialogue going and truly promote the betterment of our society as a whole. This episode of Global Voices was produced by Holt Alden, Jason Lee, and Susan O, oh, and directed and edited by me, Sarah Wyman, and Katie Linder. Special thanks to Raja Batar, Keith Fink, Haley Nieves, and Aubrey Sassoon, all of whom lent their voices to this episode. Thanks also to the good people at UCLA Radio, whose support has made this podcast easier for us to produce and for you to listen to. Music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions at the Free Music Archive, and we used sound clips from Milo Yiannopoulos' YouTube channel. Our theme is composed by Kasha Kazmala Dalbeck. Global Voices is a production of The Generation, UCLA's foreign affairs magazine, and the Berkle Center at UCLA. To see more of our work, visit the-generation.net.